We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the Bee Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. So think of today's climate. What people out there are saying about educators, saying about schools, saying about teachers. And think about the idea of getting our parents involved with the educational process. Now, oftentimes, that may bring up ideas of why are they so involved? But that also has to bring home the idea that maybe they're involved in the wrong way. What if we could get them involved in a positive fashion so that parents, communities, and schools all worked in concert to help make kids be the most successful they can possibly be. Hey, everybody, Dr. Jones with another episode of Seeing to Lead, the podcast designed to help leaders solve those educational issues they face every day. And this week, I talked to Harvey Hazen, who is a veteran in the educational field. He is a firm believer No, staunch advocate of making sure we get parents even more involved in school, but in a positive fashion, by helping them learn skills to engage and advocate for their children in a way that helps everybody succeed. His philosophy is built on the base of every kid can learn if given the right incentives and that Every kid is valuable and can contribute positively to society if given the right tools and abilities to do so. And that is on educators and school systems to get done. Our conversation went to a lot of different places, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was the idea of working to get under the different masks that people wear so we can reach the authentic human underneath. Now, isn't that a great core value for all educational institutions? As always, thanks for tuning in and the feedback that you give me. If you have a specific topic you want to hear about or a guest that you know about, reach out, let me know. And remember, hit subscribe and share this episode with your biggest takeaway. Tag me on social media and let's start a conversation. Now, let's get to getting better with Harvey Hazen on Seeing to Lead. Let's talk about flex time in schools. 
The potential benefits to our students make it worth exploring. More time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students, and the increased engagement that comes along with it. Dedicated time for intervention. Overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. Keep your sense of humor with your staff. If you're a leader who is always dead serious about things, people tend to turn you off after a while. Whereas if you've got a sense of humor about things, if you can joke with people, if you could be a human being with people, then they're much more willing to accept you and accept your leadership and move with you. Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thought dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. R.V. Hazen was a public school educator for 37 years. He was a teacher, counselor, high school principal, vice principal, middle school principal, and district superintendent. During that time, Harvey followed the progress of many students' careers as they went off to college. Many of them were less than successful, even though they left high school with great academic records. Over the years, he talked with many of them. Many reported two things to Harvey. One, their programs simply seemed to lack relevance. And two, they had a very hard time adapting their learning style to the college demands. Thinking back over his own college career, Harvey realized that in the beginning, he'd had much the same experience. Then, a very perceptive college professor took Harvey under his wing and he began to thrive because he realized the relevance of the learning experience and his professor helped Harvey adapt his learning style. Harvey hopes his experience will help students who are currently not meeting their goals and currently works as a consultant and owner of Hazen Educational Consulting to further that cause. This is going to be a good discussion because as you've heard in his bio, Harvey has a ton of experience, and the work he's doing today is tied to that own personal experience, which makes it authentic, meaningful, and very valuable. So, Harvey, welcome to Seeing to Lead. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks for the time. So, you know, I mentioned how your experience makes what you do now more authentic, meaningful, and valuable. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about 
how you came about to doing this, especially, you know, a long career in education, especially after your first experience in college. Well, it kind of goes back to my beginnings, which is kind of uh, different, maybe in some ways. I grew up in a small farm, but a very small community. And socially, I was pretty isolated because I lived out of town. There weren't the typical activity buses that we have today that run kids home after school. So, uh, you know, I pretty much did the farm work and my homework and, and stayed pretty close to home. Not a lot of friends, really. And so I know it was a small high school. So, but I had some teachers in high school that, that were really important to me because they saw something in me that, you know, I, I, I didn't see, frankly, at the time. And my family had not had a history of you know, higher education. And so I uh, got really interested in history, mostly because I'm at Social Studies General because I had some really good teachers in that area. They were really good. <laughs> and so I went on to college uh, and, and didn't have a great GPA or anything. Went on to college uh, with high expectations. And first thing I think that happened to me is I met with my coach, counselor, whatever he was that was supposed to to uh, tell me what to do next. And then he looked at my SAT scores and says, you, you're really, you're lacking in math skills. I said, well, that's true. Math's always been a hard subject for him. And he said, I don't think you're going to make it. Well, just by nature, he ticked me off and asked that I was bound to determine I was going to prove him wrong. So uh, I found some some classes that I really liked and, and I found some professors that I really liked. And there were two in particular history professors that kind of saw my passion for history and, and I already knew I wanted to be a teacher. And that was modeled off of my high school teach, uh, teachers, no doubt. And, and they really helped me and they, they helped me in a variety of ways. They helped me to begin to adjust to the college setting. And they said, look, you know, you're not in high school. You're now in college. You're going to be in these big lecture halls and, and you're going to have to learn to adapt to those things and, the, and you're going to have to be a better note taker than you are. So you need to work at that. You need to work at your reading skills. And actually one summer, when I had the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, when I got home, I took a class at my local, the local high school to improve my reading. Not sure it did, but it, <laughs> So anyway, I struggled for a while the first year or two, and yeah, the things caught on, and the classes got a little smaller, and well, you should get a higher level working, and I enjoyed it. So came around to my student teaching, and I was at I was at a high school that was right close to the campus because I didn't have a college walking student, and, and and I ended up with this history teacher who was the kind of epitome of old school. And it was, I hate to tell this story because it sounds terrible, but I will tell it because it's important. It was the first year that mandatory busing had taken place. So this school, which had been pretty much an all-white school and got kids from the area that was the richer kids, all of a sudden had kids from across the river, so to speak, that were being bused in. And the population of black students. She said, this is literally the truth. So those of you that are educators will gasp, but she said, don't spend a lot of time 
those kids, they can't work. I was appalled. I, I was just appalled. Every wow. piece of my education, every piece of my being was appalled. So I went about silently kind of, she let me go, thankfully. And I went about kind of changing the structure of the class. I changed it to a much more interactive class. We were doing group discussions and they were doing real life projects that connected them to their own history and see how the history connected to what people were going through at the time we were studying. I just changed the whole thing. Well, and one day I ended up with the head of the Socialist Department from PSU, Portland State University, the head of the, of the education department and principal in my classes. They, they really didn't warn me that they were coming. I knew I was going to get observed, but I didn't know I was going to get observed <laughs> by all those people. The class went really well. I mean, the kids did great. It was a great discussion. Everything went very well. Well, at the end of that class, two of the little gals in class who were the busted kids came up to me and said, Mr. Hayes, did we do a good job for you? They do. <laughs> you know, they, they were yeah. spot on. Yeah. They knew exactly what was going on. And uh, I said, yeah. But it taught me that given the right incentives, every kid can learn and every kid is valuable and and can be a contributing member of our society given the right tools and the right ends. So that kind of launched me into my career. And I taught for a few years, then I was counselor for a few years, then I moved into administration. I moved around quite a bit within the state of Oregon. Partly because I enjoyed challenges. When I got to the superintendent's level, the districts I took on were pretty much districts that nobody else wanted because of things that were going on in those districts. And I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. If you can make change happen, then that's a lot of fun for me. And then I retired in 1998. I retired. And my wife said, you spent too much. I had 30 years at that point. My wife said, you spent too much money. You got, you got toys, a boat, a camper, and a this and that. She said, you got to go back to work. Well, I couldn't work in Oregon. had to go somewhere else. So I came up to Washington and took the smallest district I could find. It was a K-6, 280 student elementary district. And they hired me as superintendent principal, which was fun for the first two years. And then it got I don't care how small it is. You're doing everything. You're cheap cooking bottle wash. And so I told the board, I said, I think I've got to just retire. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. We'll hire a principal and you can do halftime soon. I said, okay. So I stayed another five years. Then I did retire in 2005. Did a little bit of consulting work, but not much. Consulted on the on a district that was hiring and superintendent. Consulted for a district that was building it in high school. And then I just kind of quit. I showed dogs. I did raise some dogs. Just did things. Pandemic hit. And I started looking around and, and I said, you know, there are so actually when we came out of the pandemic, I said, well, there are so many kids that are just, they're lost, you know, because everything got disrupted. Parents got disrupted. They got disrupted. It came back and it, it just to a totally different kind of setting. And I got motivated to say, can I jump back in it 
help in some way. And so that's what caused me to set up the program for her, for parents and students who are struggling to help both parents and students to, to uh, get back on track and, and benefit from their schooling. So that's kind of where I'm at. That was my story. Sorry, I took that long. <laughs> no, that's all right. So, you know, so you have this story and you have a, a span of history where you just explained and where you even stepped out for a little while because you're retired. Now, we all know people that have retired twice, maybe three times, because they come back for whatever reason or whatever fulfillment they get from that or the need to have them there. And one of the things that really stuck out was the idea of belief in yourself and expectations that others have for you. And what really hit me was when you had somebody tell you, well, I don't really think you're going to make it. And where that fired you up, there are many people where that just absolutely pushes them down, especially when there's lower expectations. So how do leaders work with teachers in schools so that subtle lower expectations, that subtle you're not going to make it type of thing doesn't occur? Because we all talk about how we have high expectations for everybody, but we know that in reality, there are those pockets, those veins in schools that occur. How do we keep that from occurring or stop it in its tracks as leaders? Well, I have... I'm a great guy for analogies and stays and stuff. So like, I used to say to my staff on a regular basis, just I'm only here by saying it, but said, I want you to remember, you teach kids, you don't teach cricket. You present cricket in a manner that the kids that you're teaching can learn. That means that you need to develop a creative approach to helping every kid in that classroom work. And if you don't know the kids you have on a, a let's call it personal basis, doesn't have to be personal, but on a basis where you can actually see what's going on with that kid. Maybe he comes to school angry. Well, there's a reason he comes away. If you can get behind that, I just was on a podcast called Mass Song. She She's using a different terminology that I would use. I would use authenticity, but she used get the mask off and see what's underneath the mask. And I like that analogy. You know, each one of us have a mask and the real one of us underneath that. And some of us know the real one underneath, some don't. And kids don't yet because they're all caught what's happening to them on a daily basis. So. If you can get under the net mask, you can teach the real kid. And and whether he has a handicap, doesn't have a handicap or not, if if you know a little bit about what's going on in his life and can help him uh, relate to school based on authentic need for learning, then you're gonna you're gonna make progress with it. If you just teach cricket then you're not progress. So that was what I used to say. One of my favorite sayings uh, from, I, I used to quote it to teachers, quote it here, it's from Maya Angelou. She said, you know, 
people will forget what you say. People will forget what you do, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And that's the truth. You know, how you make those kids feel in classroom is what they will remember down the road. You know, and if you got kids coming back to say, Mr. Smith, that class you taught, that was really fun. I enjoyed it. You've won. Yeah, most certainly. And, I, you know, I'm glad you said that because it, just to make sure I'm hearing you right, you're talking about the idea of a creative approach, but a creative approach based on the individual student because you take the time to create those relationships so that you know those students. I Yeah, I really do think you need to know the students that are fighting. fighting. That doesn't mean you have to adapt your curriculum for each kid. That, but it does mean that you need to take into account how you structure your curriculum, how you structure your groups, how you do this and that based on those kids. And uh, it just is a small example. If you put a kid that's struggling at home with uh, a group of kids that are very uh, solid in their academics approach, they can often help that kid. And they will. I think students are very generous given the right motivations for doing that so you something that really piqued my attention and I, I i like how you have the kids involved in that piece but you said you don't adapt the curriculum for the kids you adapt the approach or the structure or how it's delivered which speaks to what you had mentioned earlier the idea of high expectations right and we always like to say you were talking about the the analogies and using cliche things i always like to say you know all means all and um, that saying right there really makes me think of that. That also makes me think of another thing of what's important in classrooms and schools. As you talk about not really being prepared for the difference in college, it kind of harkens back to the idea, even though we're teaching curriculum and supporting the implementation of curriculum, we need to be focusing on skills and skills that students can carry forward into new situations. You have any idea or thoughts about how we do that and how we have more of a skills focus while still supporting the curriculum that, you know, by mandate, we have to uphold and implement. You know, I like, I'll tell you that one of the things that I think is very powerful is project-based learning, where students are actually engaged in a project, whether it be in a history class, project is preparing a discussion within a small group of kids around a particular issue or whether it be in a math class where the project is use your math skills to design something, you know, whatever it might be. I think project-based learning has a lot of promise for both developing the skills at the same time as you're developing the curriculum piece. So project-based learning is one thing, so I think. The other thing that, that and some educators like this, but by saying this, but I think we need to start trying to get parents engaged in being good advocates for their kids. Parents often see things, know things that you and I don't see and don't know. And if a parent, and many of these parents have not had good experiences with school themselves, you know, that makes it doubly tough. And you and I both have seen parents they're frustrated with something that's going on that goes up and they come to school and they're angry. That's not productive for them and it's not 
protective for the child and it's not protective for the teacher because the teacher's going to respond not positively when you got right. an angry parent right. yelling right. at you. So if the if parents can begin to develop some skills to to engage with the school in a positive way and say, I see this going on with Johnny at home. I'd like to help your help in working this out so that I can get Johnny to head the right direction, whatever, however that conversation might go. But if parents can do that in a reasonable, positive way, then that's a game for everybody. And the older the kid gets, the more the parents need to be helping the child learn to be their own advocate for themselves. I think that's one thing my parents did for me is I learned early on some leadership skills, I guess, that most people did. I mean, I was 16 years old. Dad put me in charge of the orchard that year, said, get the crop off. And I, I remember one particular incident where we had a picker that was what we called a dirty picker. He was picking stems and he was throwing everything in the box that came off the dirty leaves alone. And I talked to him and I warned him, told him he need to straighten up. Well, came back, looked at the next box and picked the same thing all over. I said, well, get down off the ladder, you're fired. Go to the house, collect your pay from mom and you're done. And he said, you can't do that. You just can't. So he went, my dad, my dad said, did he warn you? Well, yeah, he told me I had, and she said, did you do it? Well, maybe not as much as he wants. He said, well, then I guess you're fired. You know, I, I guess at an early age, I learned some skills about standing your ground, having guts enough to do what you think is right. A lot of kids don't have the advantage of learning at an early age. And I think it helped. And I think kids need parents' help to learn and teachers' help to learn to advocate for themselves. To learn to say, yeah, I'm having a problem. I need some help. And, and if we can teach kids that, if they can go to college with that skill, as well as the skills we give in other places, they can go a long ways because if they're scared to go talk to the professor, they're struggling in a class, the likelihood is they'll say it. Whereas if they go talk to the instructor, say, I'm having trouble. This is where my trouble is. Can you give me some advice to help me overcome it? That instructor is going to go out of their way to probably help them. Whereas if they just sit there, say nothing, struggle, then. Right. So there's an interpersonal relationship skill here that I think we often kind of miss that piece. We don't kind of prepare kids for college in all of the areas. One of those areas is the interpersonal relation skills, I think. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals 
to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad you finished up with the interpersonal relationship piece because the parent engagement, and I, I'm glad you talked about that because as soon as you said parent engagement, I could imagine people's ears perking up because of the environment or the climate that we're in today with education and with parents and with politics. I was going to ask you to unpack it, but you did a little bit and then you illustrated it with a story. One thing about parent engagement well, two things, actually. We'll start with one. One thing about parent engagement is, is that responsibility for parents being more engaged? Because engagement decreases the older the kid gets. But is that responsibility on the parents to be engaged and to reach out to the schools? Or are you saying that it's the school's responsibility to reach out to the parents and make sure they're engaged? It's a good question. And I kind of think it's a mutual responsibility. That's where, as an educator, that's kind of where the rubber beats the road is, can we team with parents to provide the best for the kid? Uh, that isn't always going to happen because there's some parents, and you and I both, the kid comes from a home that's drug-affected, or the kid comes from a home that's a broken home, or whatever the case may be. You have to deal with those, too. But if the parent is receptive, if the school can reach out through parent groups or their PTA, through, through communication systems that they might develop that has parents in groups that can talk to each other and the school at the same time. I, there's a variety of ways that schools get creative and do that sort of thing. And it's sometimes, I think sometimes we have negative experiences to pair with parents and we just almost withdraw things. He's going, I'm going to go. And that's really the wrong thing to do. You know, what the right thing to do would be say, okay, well, you know, how can I gauge parents that are positive, care about their kid? How can I gauge them in a a way that is positive, both for the schools, parent, and the child? And some schools can get real creative. uh, it depends, uh, I think, on the, where the school is. It depends on the parents you've got to deal with, strength of your PTA organization. There's a lot of things involved in that. But I learned a lot little that I had, or maybe the biggest, when I finished up my career. They had, we had 280 kids. We had an active parent organization. One of the things they did, which is just an indicator of their involvement, is they had an auction every year. The whole community donated to this auction. Everything. 280 kids. That, we probably had 100 parents that were really involved in that. They made $35,000 every year. If they made under $35,000 at that auction, they felt a failure. Wow. And it was a highly engaged community. They never failed a bond issue. While I was there, we built... Several million dollar addition to this 
lost the bond for that first time, no problem. It was because of the connection between that school and that community. Yeah. And if you can get that kind of connection going between your school, your community, your parents, you can do great things for kids and great things for your teaching staff as well because they felt supported. They felt good about what had gone on every year at that auction. So that just underlines the importance of building that that type of relationship. So I think but, you so. Know, yeah, I and it actually answered, I said I had two things about the parent engagement piece, but it actually answered my second one because, you know, sometimes we ask the wrong question. I was going to ask you at what point is too much involvement, but there can't be too much involvement. This is what I've come to just listening to what you just said. There can't be too much involvement as long as involvement is positive. So if the school crafts it, yeah. That's right. That That's exactly what I always said too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> If the school crashes. As long as it's positive involvement, there can't be too, too much involvement. And and it can't, it doesn't need to stop. It needs to change when the kid reaches high school or whatever. More of the, more, the parents need to shift more of the burden for the advocacy for themselves to them. But it, and it depends on the kid. I, I had a son who was HD part. But he had the part, very distracted, very intelligent, but very distracted. His mother and I, his mother, especially teachers, and I had to advocate several times to make sure that he was getting what he needed from teachers. We even had to do it college once, which was an interesting experience because the college, they wanted him because he was a great swimmer. They took him. He went with an IEP. But they weren't serving the IG. So his mother and I went and sat down at the college folks and, and we talked to him. He was there. We talked what they had accepted and what he needed, which was he couldn't take notes. He mean, that was just a possibility for it. He just scribbled stuff and it makes sense later. So he was supposed to have a note taker, you know, to help him. And he got that. And he managed to graduate in a, with an art degree and went on to be a naval officer. I know. Tell me about that. I don't understand. We all find our paths different ways. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, there are cases where the parent will need to advocate, maybe even on it to college first. But I did it in a positive way with, with the college and I didn't make an enemy out of it. They just needed to understand what he needed in order to be successful. Once they understood, they gave it to him. He was successful. And that's the goal, right? So. Yeah. No, that's excellent. So, you know, we've been talking for a little while. We're getting to the end of the podcast. And I I ask every person that comes on, I ask them two questions. And so I, I just want to make sure I get these two questions in with you. The first one is, if you were an educator, who, not what would you be? I... I thought of some about that. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed, well, I have always been the outdoors. I've been a hunter. I've dealt with dog all my life, one way or another, which I've learned probably as much from dogs as I did for kids. But, uh, you know, so I probably would have been for service ranger, something on that order, something like that. If I'd followed the family trajectory, I probably would have been a farmer. But I just 
and see that glass up on a line and call it. So <laughs> I, I probably would have, and I did actually during the summer, I paid for a couple of years of college, my old college by working for the U.S. Forest Service in the summer as a survey and who had some maps. It right, right. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. But, no, good stuff. At any rate, so I, I probably would have done something on that order, something out of something wildlife or that, nice. that sort. So what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to better support engage and empower those they serve. I've thought about this with some. I have several important pieces of advice, but they're all tied together. I think one is keep your sense of humor with your staff. If you're a leader who is always dead serious about things, people tend to turn you off after a while. Whereas if you've got a sense of humor about things, if you can joke with people, if you could be a human being with people, then they're much more willing to accept you and accept your leadership and move with you. And, you know, I think that maybe is the most important piece. There's a lot of other things that are important, but I think being a human being with your staff, with your community, all of those pieces is important. You know, I, I think they, uh, they appreciate it. They know you are on their side because you're willing to engage with them in something other than just a daily routine of what goes on in schools. And uh, I was a bit known as a jokester, and my staff responded by joking back. Sometimes they get up, but I mean, I came in once to my office when I was principal and uh, found my best stuff with styrofoam balls. And a couple of staff members looking around the corner laughing. I got to eat it. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's good sense of humor. I think maybe that's the one thing I would say hey, top of the list. There are a lot of things on I think that. Excellent. Well, thanks. So, Harvey, how do how does a listener get in touch with you if they want to reach out and get in touch with you after listening to this? Sure. I have a website. It's easy. HarveyHazen.coach. And it's... Uh, Kind of just a really basic overview of what I do with parents and kids. There's nothing real detailed. That. And that's on purpose, really, because I try to tailor whatever I'm doing with kids and parents to actual situation, not prescribe listing things. So they can book a call in their Zoom call, or if they just want to talk on the phone, that's fine, too. But they can book that in. It comes to my email then I will respond to them. They can also go directly to my email, which is harveyhazen.yahoo.com. That's an easy. And I'm willing to, usually it takes 15 or 20 minutes uh, just to talk to them to find out if we're compatible, let's say. Right. And if I can do what they naturally are functional. And then what I've said to everybody when I've been on a podcast, if they want to carry it further after the initial phone call, I'll give them a half hour consultation with them and their child for free. Just a half hour just to talk and say, and then if they want to take it further, we can talk about the, the program that, that we would set up. So that's, I think it's an easy approach for everybody. And I trying to give a little value to anybody that wants to contact me, regardless of whether they want to go further. Now, I can give some advice and some thoughts about 
you know, parent can engage or how students might respond differently to what's going on. That's great. So, Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Harvey. I enjoyed talking to you today. I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Well, I appreciate being here. That's one of the more fun things to do is talk to fellow educators about what's going on with education. So I'm enjoying Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you have heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating or review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Jigsaw Learning. Whether you lead at the school, district, or division level, you're serving a wide array of students, and you know that no one person has all the answers when it comes to meeting each of their needs. That's why Jigsaw Learning helps leaders and their staff and faculty to develop a collaborative approach. Every child deserves a team, and when you put together the pieces of effective collaboration, you can realize that team's full potential. Connection relationships, and authentic collaboration are at the foundation of Jigsaw Learning's work. Through professional learning presented on-site, online, or a blend of both, Jigsaw's team of experienced learning associates works with you to develop a personalized plan to help collaborative response thrive in your organization. Learn why educators have described working with Jigsaw Learning as powerful, wonderful, and beneficial for all students. Visit jigsawlearning.ca and connect with the team for information. That's jigsawlearning.ca. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E.